Did you know, in 2011, the United Nations General Assembly adopted a resolution which recognized happiness as a fundamental human goal, and it called for a more inclusive, equitable, and balanced approach to economic growth that promotes the happiness and well-being of all peoples. A year later, in 2012, the first-ever UN Conference on Happiness took place, and the United Nations General Assembly adopted an additional resolution which decreed that the International Day of Happiness would be observed every year on 20 March. That's next week. Serendipitous? I think not. Let's talk about happiness. In preparation for this episode, I scoured my Google Drive for some cryptic notes I knew I made some time ago on the subject of happiness. It is a topic that is so broad and subjective, fraught with trip-ups and traps, that I've abandoned it several times. We'll see if this episode makes it to the other side. I never discovered those happiness notes. What I stumbled upon instead was a piece written almost three years ago to the day called The World on Lockdown. Hard to believe that three years have passed since those early days of COVID, and I know everyone is tired of hearing and talking about COVID. Hang with me here. I am tired of it too. But if I'm going to do this piece on happiness, it's got to start with what COVID did to our relationships. And if I do this thing correctly, the connection at the end will be obvious. COVID shrunk the world. It isolated us and drove us all indoors. It made us fearful of our neighbors and our public spaces. We lost the capacity to seek out new things and engage with new ideas. Both sympathy and kindness declined and we became less motivated to pursue goals or face responsibilities. These are all documented effects from a study of over 7,000 adults that was just published. Suffice it to say, things were bad, but we had no idea as a world community just how bad it would get, and it's still not gone. There, that's it. Let's move on to this thing called happiness. Maybe now you're wondering if it's even possible to measure something so subjective. Sure. Every day we experience moments of happiness, the little but not insignificant things like we find a great parking spot or we have coffee with a loved one or friend, we get a raise or promotion, we have a great workout. All of these things are immediate happiness markers, but they fade really quickly, some say in less than 24 hours. Let's set those things aside. For the sake of this discussion, let's look at the long-term happiness. Where am I going with all of this? Well, Let me tell you about the answer to a question that was asked to a group of people between the ages of 28 and 45 regarding happiness and life goals. When asked about their most important life goal, 80% of these respondents said they wanted to be rich. 50% of those people said they wanted to be famous. Now, to be fair and give the full picture, this study was done just prior to the height of COVID. I haven't been able to find a recent update, but I'd be curious to see what the answers were today. And it's always a little dangerous using data because you never know who compiled it or how thorough their process was. And these days, the modern response to any data collection is, who can you trust? Everybody's got an angle. Personally, I still believe you trust the science and the scientists who've devoted their entire lives to research. But I digress. So in the interest of modern times, let's go to the extreme. What if I told you there's a study going on today that began in 1938? It's one of the longest-running studies of human life ever conducted. Would you believe that data? 
For the last 85 years, the Harvard Study of Adult Development has been tracking, compiling, and analyzing thousands and thousands of pages of data on the lives of 724 men, 456 of them from some of Boston's poorest neighborhoods, and 268 of them were sophomores attending Harvard University just prior to the beginning of World War II. These two groups were picked very deliberately. Some of these men went on to serve and die in the war. Others grew into factory workers, lawyers, doctors. Some of them went to prison. and One of them was a young guy named John F. Kennedy Jr. If it wasn't still going on, most would say it's impossible. And they'd be right, because most studies like this fall apart in less than a decade due to several reasons, but the main ones being loss of funding or interest. Sometimes participants disappear or quit, or researchers lose interest or die. The Harvard study is currently operating under its fourth director, Dr. Robert Waldinger, professor of psychiatry at Harvard University and author of The Good Life. Here's how they've managed this thing for the last 85 years. Every two years, surviving participants were and are still brought in and interviewed at length. They undergo mental exams and are given questionnaires with very specific questions. Then, every five years, they're given extensive health exams along with brain scans. And by extensive, in the early days of the study, we're talking right down to measuring penis and testicle size. Their children were interviewed. Conversations with their wives were recorded. Eventually, the wives and children were absorbed into the study. And all in all, over 2,000 participants have been documented. 50 of them are still alive today and in their 90s or 100s. What did they learn in the tens of thousands of pages about happiness? Well, I'll tell you that in a minute, but first I got to tell you about something called hedonic adaptation. The technical definition goes like this. Hedonic adaptation is the observed tendency for humans to return to a relatively stable level of happiness after major positive or negative events or life changes. Basically, after a major event, doesn't matter how elated or devastated we feel, we'll eventually return to the level of happiness we've always been. This phenomenon explains why most lottery winners return to their baseline level of happiness once the adrenaline buzz of winning all those dollars wears off. What determines this baseline? Well, it's a blend of genetics and life circumstances. Pretty obvious. Why is it important? Well, because the pandemic depressed people's normal baseline levels of well-being. Just getting back to, quote, normal made us all feel amazing. COVID lowered the bar, and not by a little, by a lot. I promise I'm getting back to the Harvard study of adulthood. First, I have to read you a quote from a paper from a couple of prominent psychologists whose names are incredibly difficult to pronounce and kind of irrelevant, no disrespect. The published title, Achieving Sustainable Gains, Change Your Actions, Not Your Circumstances. They write, the effects of positive circumstantial changes, such as securing a raise, buying a new car, or moving into a sunnier part of the country, tend to decay more quickly than the effects of positive activity changes, such as starting to exercise, changing one's perspective, or initiating a new project or goal. They go on to say, our data suggests that effort and hard work offer the most promising route to happiness. And these assertions about working longer and harder support years of theories that state life is driven by having a sense of purpose, feeling that your life matters and that the world makes sense. All of them, 
still true today. But here's what the 85 years of the Harvard study has found as it relates to the key component to happiness. All those brain scans, all those questionnaires, all those measured testicles determined that it was not to work longer or harder. And, big surprise, it has little to do with wealth or fame. The one thing that matters most when it comes to happiness? Relationships. The Harvard study determined that strong, meaningful relationships keep us happier and healthier. Period. There are three main legs to this premise. Number one, loneliness kills. If a person is experiencing a prolonged sense of loneliness, they are more likely to see their brain function begin to decline as soon as midlife. And the study goes on to suggest that sadly, one in five Americans admit to being lonely. Number two, it's the quality of your relationships, not the quantity. They looked at the participants as they reached the age of 50, and they determined that those people who were happiest in their relationships at 50 became the healthiest 80-year-olds. And number three, good, strong relationships protect our bodies and our brains. People who are connected and feel like they can count on their partner experienced less mental decline. It was less about cholesterol levels and more about how satisfied and supported they felt. Are you disappointed? I was when I read all the research and I watched a few interviews and TED Talks with Dr. Waldinger. I guess I expected a ta-da moment. I wanted an A, B, C equals happiness quotient. And something I found conspicuously missing from all of this talk about happiness was the word love. It's barely mentioned. Now, maybe we can assume that if you're maintaining quality relationships, it goes without saying you love these people and you will be receiving love from these people. When I finished with all the research with the Harvard Study of Adult Development, I got curious and I Googled happiness in 2023. And here's how Google breaks down the numbers in an article that Newsweek appropriately titled By the Numbers. Apparently, 33 is the general age that is considered the happiest. $75,000 is the annual salary it takes to put a smile on the average person's face. 25% is the percentage increase in happiness from having a close friend living near you. 40% the approximate percentage of your happiness that is truly up to you. 15.3% as the percentage increase in your happiness if a loved one is happy. Here's the big one. 50%. That's the percentage of our own happiness that is genetic. Oh, and 37% seems to be the percentage by which your happiness increases simply by wearing bright colors. Look, the modern world wants a quick fix. Guilty. Hey, we can all just wear yellow tomorrow. Or we can cultivate true connection. There's your happiness quotient. Connection times engagement equals happiness. Graded on the genetics curve, of course. I don't know. Could work. Here's my take. I think it's time to expand outward and we can do it in a responsible way. Personally, hey, I may be wearing a mask on an airplane for the rest of my life. Let's be honest. Who wants to breathe the exhaust from hacker guy in the next seat? Not me, not you. A lot of us have gotten very good at being solitary. Amazon makes it easy. They deliver everything. Clothing for you, your kids, your dog. Cosmetics for you, your kids, your dog. Movies, electronics all of it to your door with little to no interaction. 
Instacart for groceries, Uber Eats and DoorDash for cravings. I'm good, right? I got it working. But it's not really working. It's not healthy. It's not conducive to happiness. And there is one more component to this relationship thing. You can't phone it in. Pun intended. Getting together with your important people is critical, yes. Just as critical as giving those people your undivided attention. Be present. Pay attention. We got to go all in with the understanding that real relationships are messy, but worth it. So there you go. Life's biggest riddle. Signed, sealed, and delivered in a box that only took 85 years to arrive. Who knows? Maybe if I ordered it on Amazon Prime, it would have gotten here sooner. Hey, thanks for listening. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And please share it, tell your friends, because the show doesn't go anywhere without you. If you want to listen to back episodes or find out how to support the show, you can do both at themindunset.com. Okay, next week, it's the first strong coffee, strong women of the season. I'll be here. I hope you will too. And until then, be nice, do good stuff.